Hi, I'm Mark Reed. Follow me as I attempt to put my new book, Impact Culture, into practice and discuss it with others taking a similar journey. You'll get tips that will help you achieve more impact from your research and stay healthy, no matter how busy you are. Rediscover your purpose. Lead from behind to empower those around you. Transform your work culture. Welcome to Season 4 of the Fast Track Impact Podcast. So this is the fourth and final of the four components of a healthy impact culture. And I want to think about capacity. And if you remember uh, back to episode one where I drew this framework, we've got a Venn diagram with research, community and purpose overlapping. Uh, and from those three now emerges uh, your impact culture. But surrounding and enabling all of those three is your capacity. Now, the chapter goes into a whole load of different things, but one thing that I'd like to just zoom in on uh, in the intro here is the idea of an impact strategy. Now, this was, I think, probably the hardest chapter to write in the book because I knew that I needed to tackle the idea of impact strategies. Everyone is writing one now. If you haven't got one, someone somewhere in your university is writing an impact strategy for your university, maybe for your faculty, for your department. Uh, Even some research groups might have uh, an, an impact strategy. But it feels kind of lifeless. It feels kind of pointless, if I'm honest, because who actually reads these things? When do they actually make a difference? Uh, and so I delved into this and uh, got some help from some colleagues, uh, Saskia Ghent um, in particular, uh, but a whole load of other colleagues. And I'll put a link to the, the, the paper um, into the show notes so you've got this. Um, uh, but we looked at 70 of these from across the world. We looked at UK, Canada, Australia, uh, Hong Kong, China, uh, Denmark and New Zealand. And we looked at independent research institutes that uh, operated uh, more globally as well. Uh, And as we read these, there were were two very different types of strategy that emerged. Now, uh, I'm going to uh, highlight what has come out of the final version of this, which is now uh, under review uh, in the journal Research for All. And uh, there's a preprint available, which I'm going to link in the show notes. And as you're obviously familiar uh, with the publication process, um, uh, it's kind of changed. Um, uh, We uh, have got various bits of pre-review feedback. We've added in new countries. uh, We've increased the sample size. We've revised, uh, changed it. And so there's some different terminology now. In the paper, we talk about achieving impact strategies versus enabling impact strategies. But I'll use some different terminology in the chapter that follows. If you want to read the preprint of the paper, uh, blog about it, written by Saskia Ghent. Uh, Some good practice examples of strategies from both types and uh, have a look at a a database uh, with all of the strategies that we reviewed, then uh, head over to my website. Um, We're looking at fasttrackimpact.com forward slash impact strategies, all one word, impact strategies. And I'm also looking forward to being joined by Saskia Gant, one of the co-authors of the paper here on the podcast. I'm going to be interviewing her uh, after I've done a training session with her, a free training session, one of uh, many events that are planned for the coming year as part of the impact culture community that I'm trying to build with all of you guys. Uh, So we'll be joined in the training session also um, uh, by uh, the authors of one of the strategies that we've pulled out as an example of good practice. That's uh, Plymouth Marine Lab. So uh, the training to look forward to and uh, the podcast episodes on this uh, for much more. But uh, as I said, this is a a chapter which is about much more than just writing impact strategies. Uh, So I'm going to hand over to the chapter at this point and let you hear more about the capacity that we need to underpin a healthy impact culture. Chapter 17, Building Impact Capacity. Now that you are in the right place at the right time, you will be much more likely to get opportunities to make a difference. However, do you have the capacity to make the most of these opportunities? What can you do to increase your own capacity? And what can institutions do to build capacity for impact? 
In this chapter, I will share some of the best ideas I have heard from colleagues working in very different types of institutions around the world that can enable you to build your own capacity and shape the capabilities of the institution you work in so you can achieve more impact with the limited time you have. And let's face it, time is the key constraint to impact for most researchers, so that's where I'm going to start. Making more time for impact. Before I get practical, I want to remind you that the only thing more important than time itself is your purpose and priorities. If impact is a priority, you will find time for it. And if you've identified at least one key action that might make a real difference to the publics and stakeholders you are working with, and can devote a small amount of time to it every week, then it is surprising what you can achieve. Like me, you are probably prioritising impact in the cracks between the tasks in your day job. But if you've done a stakeholder analysis and developed an impact plan, as I suggested previously, now, while you get back to your teaching or whatever other task you have to do for the day, there is a team of people continuing to work on the impacts you want to see in the world. The most dramatic example of the power of this approach happened to me when I got a phone call from someone who had read about my research in a newspaper article. Her name was Dr. Aletta Bonn, and she worked for the Peak District National Park as research manager for the Moors for the Future restoration programme. I was entering the last year of my PhD at the time, and when she asked if she could use my research as a way of accessing carbon finance for peatland restoration, I told her that this was just an idea we had proposed in our paper, and I had no idea how to turn that idea into reality. Neither did she. That would have been the end of it, but she got me thinking. She had a need that my idea could meet, if only we could turn that idea into reality. I also had a need. My wife and I wanted to start a family, and my PhD was on deserts, which meant significant amounts of time away from home. Growing up, my best friend's dad was an academic botanist, leading plant-hunting expeditions every summer for the whole summer. I didn't want to be away from my kids that much. But there are lots of peat bogs in the UK. I'd kept a letter's number, so when a friend told me about a seed corn fund I could apply for, I called her up and asked what she thought about trying to turn that idea into reality. We got the money, and our first step was to do the stakeholder analysis. I turned up to the Moors for the Future office on a crisp, bright winter morning in the picturesque valley of Edale, where Aletta introduced me over a coffee to a couple of other stakeholders who knew everyone that worked in the area. Together, we drew up a list of organisations and names. They explained who we really needed to connect with as a matter of priority, who we needed to watch out for, and who we should never put in the same room together. They told us there was one person in particular who was the key opinion leader in the land management community. If you can't get him on side, then you won't get any of that community to work with you, and without them, you can't do this project. The only problem was that he was sceptical of desk-based conservationists, and even more sceptical of academics, who may only know nature from books. They told me that if I wanted to get off on the right foot, I should write an introductory letter on headed paper and use the post, as he regarded email as informal and would be unlikely to reply. I followed their advice, and a few weeks later found his reply in my pigeonhole. Two weeks later, I crept out of bed in the early hours of the morning to collect two senior colleagues and drive from Leeds to the Peak District and we turned up an hour early outside his office. As we waited in the car, my colleagues discussed tactics and concluded quite rapidly that, given what we'd heard about the person we were about to meet, it would be better if I went alone, because I was the only person out of the three of us with a British accent. Given that the success of the entire project hinged on the success of this meeting, and I was just a PhD student who had only ever worked in Africa until this point, I was far from happy with this conclusion, but I went with it. 
We had spoken the night before about what to wear for the occasion, and I had fished out a navy V-neck jumper my mum had given me for Christmas years ago that I'd never worn, in an attempt to look less like a city-dwelling academic. I was ushered through an open-plan office, to an office at the end with a wooden placard on the door, and I shook his hand and introduced myself. I was so nervous that I can't remember a thing about the meeting, except that he loved our idea and was happy to work with us and tell his colleagues and friends. My senior colleagues were delighted, and we celebrated with lunch in a Yorkshire tea house. I remained elated until I got home that evening, and my wife opened the door with a look of incredulity on her face. Mark, she said slowly, why are you wearing that hideous jumper with a V-neck at the back? After taking off the jumper and putting it in a pile for a charity shop, I called my colleagues and asked them why they hadn't told me I was wearing my carefully selected jumper back to front, and they told me they hadn't noticed. Once an academic, always an academic. Partly as a result of that first connection, the project was a big success. A letter went on to work with an international conservation organisation working to restore peatlands across the UK and by the time she eventually moved back to Germany to take up a chair position, I was regularly working with the organisation and offered to take over her role as research lead for the charity for free. We had one core goal, to make that idea a letter had contacted me about all those years ago a reality. By this time I was a senior lecturer, having moved from Leeds to Aberdeen, and I didn't have time to do all the work that was needed but the conservation organisation I was now working with had organised a series of annual workshops, followed by a commission of inquiry, to try and establish scientific consensus around the key pieces of evidence we needed to achieve our goal. There were gaps in the evidence, and so this was a slow process of many years, but ten years after that original phone call, we eventually launched the UK Peatland Code to channel private investment into peatland restoration. Now, through connections from this charity, I am working with a United Nations organisation on getting private finance to restore damaged peatlands, which are among the most important contributors to climate change from land in some of the poorest nations of the world. I am just one small part of a network of researchers feeding into this work, and that's how it should be, as they want to draw on the best available evidence from around the world. The point I'm trying to make, however, is that I am working with teams of stakeholders who want to see the same impacts as me, and so with limited inputs of time from me, we are achieving impacts on a scale I could never have imagined on that cold autumn day in Edel. There are three very practical messages from this story. First, you can see how I used stakeholder analysis and impact planning tools to prioritise a small number of people to whom I reached out with a tailored pitch so I could create an empathic connection. We made a plan and we stuck to it, prioritising activities that might one day take us to our goal. Can you make an action right now to do a stakeholder analysis and identify one or two people you could reach out to this week? Can you identify impact goals with them that will meet their needs and come up with a joint plan to reach those goals? Second, I made this one impact a priority. Everyone else on our original team moved on to other things, but I kept pursuing that original idea. Bending what little time I had for impact towards that one goal, and finding others who shared my goal who could devote more time to it than I had. Can you find an impact you believe in enough to make it a core priority? Can you find others who share your passion and join their teams? Who else is trying to achieve something similar who might be able to help you achieve your goal? Can you set aside a small amount of time each week to work on this goal, even if that's just taking an hour for lunch and spending half of that each day working on this impact? Third, I built that priority into successive projects, finding resources to keep pursuing our goal and building time to pursue impact into the roles I advertised on those projects. 
As part of this, I took a secondment with the government department, and I included a secondment with the charity for one of my postdocs in the last project I led on peatland. Can you build your impact priority into your existing role, or into a role description for a future post? Can you build this priority into your next project, or apply for funding specifically to support your impact? While there may be more you can do to make time for impact than you expect, it is also important that we have some help from our institutions. I've seen a number of universities introduce impact sabbaticals in recent years through a small adaptation to their existing sabbatical system. Now, in addition to proposing a strategically important piece of research you would like to prioritise on a sabbatical, you can propose a programme of work to achieve an impact goal. The most common approach is to use workload models, but this can go badly wrong. The key challenge is how to allocate time to impact when one person might have to take a few hours a week for many years, as I did, to achieve the same impact another person might achieve with a few well-placed conversations if the time is right and there is a window of opportunity. One person could spend weeks of their time doing school's work and achieve significant impacts with very limited reach, while another might achieve global impact with a single speech. Others spend years working on impacts that get blocked when a new government takes power and have nothing to show for their work. There are three different solutions to this, each of which I have seen working successfully. One. Assign workload for impact based on the number of hours spent engaging in impact during the previous year, regardless of the outcomes of that engagement. 2. Assign workload for defined impact generation or evaluation tasks, for example to do a secondment, visit different countries to engage with policymakers, launch a spin-out company from research, and write up an impact case study. Three. Assign workload to impact-related roles, for example as Director of Impact for a school or centre, or as an Impact Champion or similar. Build skills for impact Once you've done your stakeholder analysis and made a plan, the most important skill you can build is conversational. You need to get out of your comfortable, current networks and start having conversations with people outside the academy who share your interests, even if that's just on social media to start with. Even if these conversations don't go anywhere yet, you are building your impact potential. It is rational to feel some fear as you contemplate meeting people from different backgrounds, especially if you were running a workshop. You may already have had negative experiences with trolls online, and it is no fun imagining interacting with people like that in real life. That's why I do basic facilitation training in all my introductory impact courses. While I hope that researchers might go on to do more in-depth training with companies like Dialogue Matters, who originally trained me as a facilitator, I believe that a few skills can go a long way if you focus on how to manage power dynamics and let the techniques facilitate those dynamics for you as far as possible. As with many other impact skills, practice and experience are as important as the skills themselves. So get some training and then try out your new skills in low-risk situations, for example by making your teaching more interactive. Your students will thank you for making your lectures more interactive and are likely to be more forgiving if you don't get things quite right than others might be in a more high-stakes scenario. The skills you need to generate impact from your research will vary depending on the nature of the impacts you seek and for whom you seek these benefits. You will be able to rely on others in your institution for many of the more specialist skills, for example around patents and intellectual property, and you can hire in consultants to do many other things if you have the budget, for example filmmakers, designers and event organisers. There are also many skills you can learn yourself, ranging from designing workshops to creating a social media strategy, and from influencing skills to using your voice effectively. 
Find out what training your institution has to offer, and if they don't have what you need, look elsewhere. In some cases, your institution or project may be able to pay for this. With enough foresight, you can build training budgets into externally funded projects. If your institution can't pay for additional training, you shouldn't give up. You don't give a second thought to buying home office supplies from your personal budget because having an operational printer is a priority. Many researchers also pay to be a member of a professional or academic society. In the same way, if impact is a priority, then why not save up for some training? When I was an early career researcher, I took on small consultancy jobs and reinvested the money they paid in things I thought would further advance my career, like books, training and conferences. In case this sounds like I'm subtly pitching for you to come on one of my courses, I don't run courses that researchers can book onto, I only provide training for institutions. My message is much less subtle. Invest in yourself and get the skills you need to achieve your impact goals. Alternatively, you might be able to organise your own training for free as a skills swap if you can find an institution that needs something you could provide from your team. For example, I wanted to get training in how to do a policy evaluation, and who better to provide this than the civil servants I was working with in government? So, I pitched a training swap. I'll come to London and run a workshop on stakeholder engagement for your team in the morning if you do policy evaluation training for me in the afternoon. I'm organising a training programme for researchers through the UN body I'm working with, and we've followed a two-step process in which we first sought and ranked the training needs of the group, and then asked everyone in the group to tell us if they were able to offer training that would meet any of these needs. It is a large enough group that we were able to match someone from the group as a trainer for every topic the group had prioritised. The act of providing training is not only an important pathway to impact, it can be a great way of enhancing your own skills in the area you're training in. If you want to become truly expert at something, you need to do three things. Learn how to do it, do it regularly, and then show others how to do it. This last step of showing others often reveals the limits of your own knowledge, forcing you to go deeper than ever before whilst giving you the opportunity to learn from those you train, as you have to consider new application contexts and challenges as people work out how to apply what they are learning with you. You don't have to be the world expert in something to show someone else how to do it. The first training course I ever ran was during the second year of my PhD when I realised that the UN agency I was working with in Botswana could be collecting better quality social science data through its interviews and workshops. I wasn't an expert, I'd only just completed my own training in how to collect this sort of data, but I could see that my UN colleagues could benefit from learning what I had learned, so I showed them. Then we went into the field together and tried out what we'd learned, and they gave me as much feedback as I gave them, as I very imperfectly attempted to demonstrate what I had taught them. Most institutions have their own internal training programmes for impact, so rather than boring you with descriptions of what these contain, I will conclude this section with some of the best ideas I have seen and heard as I have talked to training teams around the world when I'm delivering my own sessions with them. Many universities offer training as part of the induction process for new staff, and increasingly impact training is part of this package for research and academic staff. I know of one university that has integrated stakeholder analysis and methods for engaging with hard-to-reach groups into their diversity and equality training, which all new starters have to attend for legal compliance reasons. A number of institutions are now tailoring their impact training to the needs of their staff through the creation of individual training plans, providing access to a series of training modules that can be selected to meet the specific needs of the researcher and the impacts they want to generate. These often also include one-to-one -one coaching, 
variously provided by the training department, by external coaches, or via peer coaching. Towards the end of the programme, researchers can opt for highly specialist options tailored to their needs and often provided by external specialist trainers. I know many research groups and centres that have run online impact training with face-to-face -face group workshops at the start, middle and end to enable colleagues to discuss what they are learning. You can use the same model for one-to-one -one mentoring using my free online impact training, knowing that the person will receive six emails over six weeks with each stage of the course, so you can organise your meetings with them around this schedule. Many universities now have their own online impact toolkits that include training resources. A quick way to build these up is to ask external trainers if you can record their sessions with a professional filmmaker, later breaking these up into bite-sized chunks to integrate with written materials, tools and case studies. Offer employment and CV-building opportunities to PhD students and postdocs to help provide continuity of employment between projects, for example helping with event design, organisation and facilitation, or impact evaluation and evidence gathering. The impact skills and contacts they gain can help build their own impact potential and capacity for future research while helping the projects they are assigned to. Such posts are typically funded by universities, but targeted effectively they can be a cost-effective way of supporting established teams in their impact, while retaining talented researchers in the institution. Some institutions have gone further and have long-term positions for researchers who want to focus on impact without swapping from an academic career path to professional services. I helped set up and train a cohort of Knowledge Exchange Fellows across the N8 group of universities in the north of England, and the majority of these researchers have since gone on to secure permanent academic positions. For this to work, it is important to ensure they get significant time for research as well as impact, and we also encouraged colleagues in more applied disciplines to integrate their impacts into their papers or write papers about their impacts where possible. Ghent University offers open-ended postdoctoral contracts for coordinators of interdisciplinary research consortia, which are centrally funded to deliver impact from research across the institution. They also have adapted their promotion procedures so that it is possible to progress on an impact track all the way to professor alongside excellent teaching and or research. Not all of these ideas will be possible in your institution, but if these ideas are out of reach because you lack resources, then you might want to consider some of the ideas in the next section. Resource impact if impact is a strategic priority for your institution, then you can reasonably expect some resources to be allocated to stimulate and support the generation of impacts from research. However, it can be challenging to convince university executives to put their money where their mouth is. One of the most impressive success stories I've seen of an impact team that made the case for internal resources was the team at Northumbria University. Their first impact manager, Dr Lucy Jowett, was made permanent, and a second impact manager, Dr Alicia Pert, was appointed in 2017. Lucy and Alicia knew they needed more help to support the volume of work needed in the lead-up to the next Research Excellence Framework deadline in 2021. There was limited understanding or engagement with impact from academics at the time, and little appreciation of the scale of the task ahead from senior leaders. To tackle this, they set about engaging with key staff, gaining trust and assessing impact across every research group and department in the university, assessing the significance and reach of each impact, the strength of evidence to support impact claims, and the quality of research underpinning the impact. Once this was complete, it was clear that the majority of impacts submitted to the process needed significant work if they were to be genuinely significant, far-reaching and well-evidenced. 
On the basis of this evidence, two more permanent impact coordinators were appointed in 2018. After repeating the impact assessment process and showing there was still much work to do, a further six fixed-term impact officers were appointed later that year. Increasing the size of Lucy and Alicia's team from one and a half people – Lucy and Alicia both work part-time – to a team of ten full-time equivalents in less than two years. An alternative approach is to seek external funding, for example for large strategic investments as a university or collectively with other universities around specific challenges or sectors to create boundary organisations See chapter 14. Alternatively, it is possible within schools and centres to organise teams so that researchers agree to include impact-related roles in all their research proposals. Each proposal might only fund 5-10% to of a role, but with enough projects it is possible to support someone long-term. For example, Newcastle University's Centre for Rural Economy funded their own communications officer for almost a decade using this model, and she gained valuable specialist knowledge of the sector, editing a prestigious policy brief series and helping organise and promote events. A growing number of universities now have internal funding schemes to support impact, but one of the key challenges is getting the right people to apply. If you organise it as a competition, you may be forced to fund the usual suspects who have the confidence and time to apply, while an early career colleague who needs more help but who is swamped by teaching won't apply and therefore doesn't get support. As such, it is worth considering how such funds can be prioritised in a transparent way to fund impacts that are particularly important or in need of help, allocating funding to those who need it most rather than to those who shout loudest. Some universities hold back impact funds specifically for early career researchers to ensure that this group gets some of the funding for impact, even if the impacts they are pursuing might take longer to yield measurable benefits than more mature impacts that senior staff have been building for years. Build your learning capacity. Now you are making time, building skills and resourcing impact. It is important to learn from your experience, so you can build on what works and learn from mistakes across your institution. As a sector, we are good at identifying and celebrating what works, but we tend to be much more nervous about sharing stories when things go wrong. Yet often we learn most from our mistakes and the tribulations of others, and when we have learned a hard lesson it pains us to see others repeating our mistakes. Part of this is about monitoring and evaluation. If we don't keep track of our impacts and evaluate them properly, we might never know if our attempts to generate impact worked or failed. Universities are increasingly investing in impact tracking systems, whether as add-ons to existing research management systems or more sophisticated systems developed specifically for tracking impact, like Vertigo Ventures' Impact Tracker. However, academic engagement is limited, even with the most sophisticated and user-friendly of the systems currently available. Impact tracking is just not a priority, even for people like me who are intrinsically motivated by impact. However, like most other researchers, I curse myself for not keeping better records when I am eventually asked to report my impact. That's why I encourage researchers to find some sort of dump for anything that might possibly be impact. I don't want to have to pause and decide whether or not something might be related to impact, or to have to open or log into a system to deposit it. I might come across something on social media, for example someone mentioning me and saying my work has been cited in a new report. Or I might meet someone at a conference who tells me that they are using my research, but I don't have any reception on my phone, let alone the time to log into an online system. I get around this by using Evernote, but Microsoft OneNote has similar functionality. I can clip web pages directly from my browser, record things directly into the app on my phone to sync when I connect to the internet later, and email things in as they appear in my inbox 
or directly from my social media apps. Vertigo Ventures Impact Tracker also has email functionality, enabling you to send material into the system without leaving your inbox. If it is quick and simple, then you might just do it on a day-to-day -day basis. You can sort through everything you dumped once in a while, when you need to report on your impact, and organise it all in your institutional repository. But at least it will all be there. However, if we really want to learn from our experiences with impact, we will need to interact with each other and our publics and stakeholders. I've already suggested running various types of impact seminar series, including sessions where you create a safe enough space for colleagues to share stories of impacts that didn't go according to plan. See chapter 12. Most importantly of all, though, the only way you will ever really know if your impacts worked is if you ask the people you were trying to help. Participatory monitoring and evaluation has a long history in international development, but it is only now being applied in impact evaluation. In its most basic form, the idea is to ask those you sought to help what success looks like from their perspective and whether or not you succeeded in those terms. One of the most challenging aspects of this is that different groups will view success in very different ways, and many of the people you speak to will not have been involved at the start, and so might not buy into the impact goals you pursued. While that might not seem fair, it is important to recognise that needs and contexts can change, and something that might have been beneficial at the start of your project might now be counterproductive or irrelevant. If impact can only ever be defined in relation to the people and contexts you seek to benefit, then the only legitimate way to evaluate impact is through the eyes of your publics and stakeholders. In contrast, the terms of reference for many impact evaluations in academic settings narrowly focus on a search for measurable benefits, rather than taking a more balanced approach to understanding both the positive effects, intended and unintended, and the negative effects of research. To do this, you have to look deliberately for what might have gone wrong. When I'm doing testimonial interviews as part of an impact evaluation, I will always ask if there was anything that went wrong or that we could have done better. It is often only after I ask this question that the stories of what went wrong begin to unfold. In one interview with a female professor about the impact of my training, she told me how my advice had enabled her to achieve things she had previously thought impossible. However, when I asked her if anything had gone wrong, she told me a horrific story of online abuse that she had suffered as a direct consequence of following my advice to use social media as one of her pathways to impact. Painful as it was to hear what had happened, I had the opportunity to apologise and to do what I could to make amends, and I was able to change my own practice to take a much more cautious approach in future training sessions. This is the point of monitoring and evaluating your impact. You learn how to do things better. Yes, it might also enable you to write your impact up for your funders or as a case study. But if you research your impact sensitively, even these case studies can offer lessons for others who follow in your footsteps. Learning from your experience is an essential part of the research impact cycle. It is this bigger thinking that we are trying to get to when we try and think strategically about our impact as an institution, and it is to impact strategy that I want to turn now. Do you need an impact strategy? As a researcher working in a research project, having a plan is essential if you want to make sure you actually achieve impacts during the course of your research. The day-to-day -day tasks of your project will take over if you don't set aside time and resources and check on your progress, adapting your plans as needs and contexts change in collaboration with your stakeholders. I've mentioned my fast-track impact planning template at various points already, but use any approach you want, just make a plan. At an institutional level, having an impact strategy is important if you are serious about impact. 
But many of these documents are formulaic and lifeless, leaving you with a sense that impact is a form of capital that has to be managed like your financial capital or human resources. I will describe the two main types of impact strategy that exist here, but I want to conclude in the next chapter by asking how we might go way beyond these types of strategy to start transforming the systems within which we do our research and impact. Working with my colleagues, Saskia Ghent and Dr. Regina Hansda, I put out a call for impact strategies. Combining these with our own searches, we catalogued over 50 strategies from different types of research projects, networks, centres, departments, universities, research institutes and funders around the world. This is what we learned. Broadly speaking, we found two very different types of impact strategy. Goal-oriented strategies that sought to achieve specific impacts and capacity-oriented strategies that aimed to build impact culture and capacity. There were also a number of things that the majority of strategies of both types had in common, for example strategic goals, partnerships, resourcing, training, monitoring and evaluation, and communication. Your first task is to decide which of the following two types of strategy is best suited to your context and purpose, or whether you want to combine the best bits of both approaches. 1. Goal-oriented strategies Goal-oriented strategies tend to be associated with organisational units focused around specific challenges or themes, for example projects, interdisciplinary challenge themes, centres, and mission-focused research institutions, such as Scotland's Rural College or the Consortium of International Agricultural Research Centres, and funders, for example the British Heart Foundation or directed programmes funded by a government's research councils. The key feature characterising this type of impact strategy was the specific impact goals driving the strategy. These goals were aligned with real-world challenges and tailored to meet the need of specific beneficiary groups. Many of the strategies my colleagues and I reviewed aligned impact goals in their strategy with the UN Sustainable Development Goals, often using heat maps and radar diagrams to visualise the overlap. Linked to this, these strategies tended to identify beneficiary groups explicitly, sometimes linking goals to beneficiaries using diagrams, and sometimes providing evidence of the needs and challenges these groups faced, which the research aimed to address. Goal-oriented strategies often included a theory of change, and sometimes referred to a logic model, showing how strategic goals and research might lead to impacts through the generation of research outputs and impact generation activities. Although this type of strategy rarely referred to an implementation plan, implementation activities were often integrated into the strategy. These impact generation activities were sometimes tailored to the needs and context of beneficiaries, sometimes explicitly considering the need to adapt to the needs of vulnerable or hard-to-reach groups. This type of strategy was the most likely to identify risks and assumptions on the pathway to impact, sometimes offering ways of mitigating these risks. Finally, these strategies tended to articulate the relationship between research and impact in more depth and have a number of strategic goals and activities designed to better align research with impact, for example by stimulating interdisciplinary collaboration, co-production or systems thinking. 2. Capacity-oriented strategies Capacity-oriented strategies tended to be developed by universities and research institutes to build capacity and culture across the institution. They were often integrated as a small part of a wider research or university strategy, which would include values and a mission or set of goals that included impact. The more of these I read, the more similar they all started to sound to each other, and the more meaningless. If all the universities I train have such similar values and goals, why do I hear such different and often opposing things from their staff? 
I have to confess that I have never read the university strategy of any of the institutions I have worked for, and I suspect that very few of the people I have trained have read them either. Very few strategies we read referenced an implementation plan, and it was hard to escape the conclusion that these documents served some higher administrative purpose, rather than actually being used to change how people work on the ground. The most significant feature characterising these strategies was their focus on institutional structures, mechanisms and resourcing for impact. Many of the professional services staff working with these strategies had suggestions about how they could add value to the grant application process. For example, get actively involved in the internal grant review process, so you get to see proposals while changes can still be made to progress impact. Work with your grants and contracts team to get notified of all new major grants. Review proposals to pull out impact components and meet principal investigators, PIs, prior to the project commencing to make an impact plan. Explore how to better support impact potential from smaller projects, most realistically by linking up with other related smaller or larger projects to provide support to these consortia of projects. Follow up systematically with award holders to see how their pathways to impact are progressing, to ensure impacts are being recorded, barriers overcome, etc. In addition to meeting PIs, facilitate meetings with stakeholders and in-country international partners to discuss impact and identify wider team training needs, giving them access to your own institutional online resources where possible and inviting them as external participants to internal online training courses. Create your own integrated theory of change and stakeholder map for all funded projects, grouped into themes, so you can see potential connections between projects and the impacts and stakeholders they are working with. Do this via two rounds of interviews with PIs, first to identify impacts, pathways and stakeholders, then to explore potential linkages and build collaborations. Many capacity-oriented strategies aimed to create opportunities for impact, often through strategic partnerships. See chapter 13 for some of the best ideas. While this sounds boring and predictable, there are some interesting approaches to this, which you can listen to in chapter 14. Many also included goals to build or enhance impact culture, but there were few concrete activities linked to these goals. The most common ones we found were internal networks and events. See chapter 14 for these ideas. Impact awards. See chapter 12 for some cautionary words on these. And integrating impact into promotions. As mentioned in chapter 1, the majority of UK universities now include impact in their promotions criteria. The majority of impact-related promotions criteria referred to REF impact case study development with a few stipulating contribution to a case study that scored above a certain threshold. Some required evidence of impact to be submitted with promotion applications using impact criteria, in some cases stating that testimonials could be used to prove impacts. Others focused more on the amount of engagement activity a person had done rather than the outcomes, not requiring applicants to prove their activities had actually led to impact. Some included different expectations depending on the level of promotion sought, with evidence of tangible impacts more likely for senior promotions. Finally, this type of impact strategy often linked impact to teaching and the student experience. For example, there are now impact modules in many degree programmes, either showcasing impacts from researchers in the department or, more usefully, providing students with skills they can use to generate evidence-based impacts in their own careers or activism. Diagnostic questions to help you build capacity for impact. Having listened to the last three chapters, I would like you to ask yourself the following questions. Are there a range of impact opportunities that might inspire and connect with the intrinsic motives of very different researchers in your institution 
Or do you only value opportunities that have the potential to generate significant and far-reaching impacts? Do your researchers have the skills they need to generate impact or opportunities to gain mastery and confidence in the new skills? Do you have the resources to support the kinds of impacts colleagues want to pursue? Are you able to systematically learn and share lessons about what works and does not work when generating impact? And are you able to tell evidence-based stories about what works? Do you have strategic partnerships or institutions or people who sit between organisations you seek to serve? Do you have leaders who are able to inspire and facilitate others to achieve impact and who can connect you with those who have needs your institution could meet. If you want to take this further, Dr. Julie Bailey and Dr. David Phipps recently published an Institutional Health Check workbook for universities to diagnose how healthy their impact support systems are. They ask about institutional commitment to impact in terms of strategies, implementation plans and leadership. They ask about connectivity in terms of the range of support functions and interactions between teams supporting impact. They ask about how clearly colleagues understand impact and the different mechanisms for generating it. They offer a framework for systematically considering individual competencies in 11 categories and considering the extent to which impacts are co-produced with stakeholders. Do a search for their work and score yourself against their checklists. What actions have you identified that could help you build impact capacity so far? Between Julie and David's work and the rest of this chapter, I hope you will be able to identify lots of tangible things you can do to build capacity for impact. I've tried to emphasise ideas that are consistent with the participatory, bottom-up approach to impact culture I proposed at the start of this book. However, there is a danger that none of us is thinking big enough. In the next chapter, I will therefore invite you to consider if there could be a more radical approach to building a healthy impact culture than anything we've considered so far. 